Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Global Migration Podcast, brought to you by the Migration Research Cluster at the University of British Columbia. In our last episode, we learned about the way that COVID-19 is transforming immigration procedures along the U.S.-Canadian border, and how those changes are having a profound bearing on the lives of refugees and other displaced peoples around the globe. In today's episode, we take this conversation one step further, looking at what happens when refugees actually make it across that border and begin rebuilding their lives in Canada. To do this, Dan Hebert, Professor of Geography at UBC, sits down with Dr. Nancy Clark, Assistant Professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Victoria, and with Salim Spindari, Senior Manager of Refugees and Migrant Workers Programs at Mosaic, one of the largest settlement organizations in Canada. After Dan introduces the wider world of refugee affairs, Salim and Nancy give us a more ground up perspective, discussing the sorts of challenges that refugees face, some questions of public health, employment, and education, to how COVID-19 is creating further obstacles for those who work in and rely on the settlement sector. Dan, Nancy, and Salim share their insights into what could be done to foster greater resilience and success, both in the midst of a pandemic and long thereafter. This is the Global Migration Podcast. I'm Doug Ober. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. My name is Dan Hebert. I'm here with Salim Spindari and Nancy Clark, and we're going to talk about the refugee and settlement experience. And then we're going to turn to think about what is changing in that particular experience in this age of COVID. Most of our conversation is really going to be about how these issues affect Canada and even more locally, what's happening in our city of Vancouver. But of course, to get there, we have to set up some context. You know, we could spend hours talking about uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. We could talk a lot about uh, the UN Refugee Convention. Uh, I'm just going to leave those things kind of uh, on the side, and I'm going to just talk about the three big elements that happen whenever there is a refugee issue. The first big thing, of course, is refugee issues start with a crisis. Then, secondly, the word movement becomes important. Refugees move from one place to another. And then, of course, refugees get somewhere. There's a destination, there's a place where they begin to reconstruct their lives. So those are the three things I'll talk about. Crisis, movement, and then outcome. So let's start with the crisis side of things. And really what we're talking about here is something that forces people to leave their homes out of fear. Uh, basically fear for their lives. Uh, there's many examples of this. Wars do this. Civil wars do this. Large systems of repression or persecution do this as well, where people just simply have to get out of where they normally live their lives. And just to get a sense of scale, in the world as a whole, in 2018, 19, you know, we don't actually have statistics for 2020 yet, but we know that around about 2019, there were 70, that's seven zero million people around the world uh, in, in this kind of circumstance. And I'll just give two examples that are highly prominent right now to illustrate the point about crisis. So the, the, the first of these is uh, the country of Syria. And in that country, the population was a little over 20 million. Now it's significantly less than 20 million because in Syria, we have seen something in the order of six and a half million people 
be uh, internally displaced and another five and a half million people be uh, externally displaced. In other words, they've actually fled the country as a whole. The second example I'll give is uh, an even more recent one, uh, and that is the situation in the country of Myanmar or Burma. And in that country, there was a sizable population, about a million and a half people who called Rohingya. They're a, a Muslim minority in a, a Buddhist uh, country. Uh, and that, that group of people has been systematically persecuted over many years. And over a million uh, of that population have left uh, the country of Myanmar. So that's a little bit of an example of the crisis side. Now let's turn uh, to the movement side. And movement, of course, we're talking about the necessity of people to escape violence. But movement has two really fundamental requirements. One requirement is that people are capable of moving. Now, if you think about it, there are people who are, for example, physically disabled. There are also people who just simply don't have the financial wherewithal uh, to move. And the second bottom line requirement is movement has to somehow be permitted. Uh, if you're going to get across a border, you have to somehow be allowed to get across that border. In some cases, borders are unregulated and people just walk across them. But in many cases, many countries make it impossible for people to leave. Now, normally, where do refugees go? Where, where does this movement uh, send people? Well, there are some who are completely immobile. They go nowhere. They just have to face the fear. Uh, and many of those people end up dying. Others who are only minimally mobile just go a short distance. And then, of course, you can think about people who are more mobile going uh, uh, further distances. Uh, first of all and foremost, to adjacent countries and sometimes to even distant countries. Now, within the, the way that people speak about refugees, what happens is when, when refugees get to a certain place in an adjacent country, typically, they need to find what is called a durable solution. They need, they, they need to get into a situation where their lives are protected over the long haul. And the way that people speak about this is we talk about three possible durable solutions. So let's again use that example of Syrians. So there's three different things that could happen to those people. Uh, one, uh, things could get better in Syria and they could return home. It's called repatriation. A second is the host country can allow them to remain uh, and can give them the right of permanent residence. Uh, and that's called local settlement. Uh, and then the third durable solution is for people to move somewhere else. Uh, that's called resettlement. Uh, that's typically done under the auspices of international organizations. Uh, the one that is perhaps most important in this is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. And then there's other international organizations like Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross, uh, like the International Organization for Migration, that can each play a role in this process. Now, what I really wanted to get to uh, with all of that context is let's now reverse our kind of focus to think about a place like Canada. How do people get to Canada? And there's two primary pathways. One of them is the ones who get there on their own volition. So these are people who leave a place of crisis and they find a way, often through uh, the auspices of human smuggling, to get from where they started all the way to a distant country like Canada. And when they arrive in Canada, 
the official terminology for that population uh, is called landed in Canada refugees. Bureaucracies have a way of making complicated phrases. But these are people who have made it all the way to Canada on their own. So they've been quite hypermobile, highly resilient people uh, that have come to Canada. And once they come to Canada, they show up and they uh, make a request, which we call a refugee claim, uh, to be able to stay in Canada permanently. But then the second pathway is through a sponsorship process where they may be living in an adjacent country to the conflict and a set of administrative processes kind of lock in and they get nominated to have a resettlement process happen in a country like Canada. That's typically done uh, through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And that connects on the Canadian side with either a government sponsorship or a private sponsorship uh, to bring that person or that family uh, to Canada. And there's uh, some quite important and profound differences between those pathways to Canada. But at the end of the day, the refugees who come here faced many kind of similar challenges when they come to Canada. Okay, so that's the big story. Now the question is, what happens when we have something like COVID-19 entering into the picture. Well, the first thing is, it doesn't much alter the nature of conflict. The conflicts continue. However, movement becomes much more difficult. And thirdly, those refugees who are either internally displaced or have moved across a border are now in a much more precarious situation. Uh, refugee camps, places that host refugees, typically have, first of all, high densities of people, and secondly, relatively modest or even minimal medical attention. Now you put those two things together and if a disease, a highly communicable disease, enters into the picture, you really have a problem. Uh, and that's precisely what we're seeing. And I also mentioned that in order for people to move, they have to both be personally mobile and borders have to be open. Well, uh, what we know about the COVID crisis is Many countries around the world have now closed their borders. So that's making the movement to secure asylum ever so much more difficult. So that's just some general things for us to think about. I'd like to now turn to Celine. Uh, first of all, Celine, can you say a little bit about what Mosaic actually does or what you and your organization do? Thank you, Don, for putting a context to this. When we look at the international community in general, really, the figure of 70 million is a really big figure. But then when, if we break it down and see what Canada does in terms of resettlement or allowing people to come, the number is really small. We, for, for the refugees that private sponsors um, are allowed to privately sponsor, even if they have the means to support the refugees for a period of one year from the date of arrival in Canada, is limited to 18,000 per year. And for the government-assisted one, it's even less than 10,000. So that's the goal, and that's the highest number that the government will try to resettle. So if you compare that to the actual number of refugees or displaced or affected people, then it's a really small number. What Mosaic does, we have many service locations throughout Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, and we offer services online to our clients before even they come to Canada. We have diverse programming, uh, including and family programs. We have employment. Uh, we offer language support, uh, both formal and informal. We have 
programs for youth and children. We have programs for seniors, and we have programs for members of the LGBTQ community. So really, we try to see what the need of the communities that we serve, and we try to address them. In terms of specific programming to refugees, it really starts from before they even arrive in Canada. Mosaic is a sponsorship agreement holder. Uh, we call them SAWS for short. And as I saw, uh, we signed a, an agreement with the government of Canada to be able to privately identify and sponsor refugees from overseas. And with that designation, what we have done, um, we normally identify refugees, in particular vulnerable population, and sometimes they might have family members in Canada or they are connected to Canada somehow, we will sponsor them. Some of the recent groups that we've worked with, privately sponsored, were Tibetan who fled Tibet and they were in India for years. And, and other groups included Syrians and Iraqis, Yazidi population, which is a minority group that faced persecution. And we are now uh, trying to sponsor refugees who are in detention center on Manus Island and Papua New Guinea. They have been there for seven years due to the uh, immigration policies of Australia that was uh, people who arrive at the shore and put them in detention. And how the, the support uh, starts, as soon as we uh, identify them as uh, people uh, that uh, Mosaic would sponsor, we uh, stay connected with them. Uh, we know that the people in vulnerable situation, they would be um, subject to uh, harsh treatment. And we've uh, organized uh, online webinars, counseling and connecting them. And of course, we work with our partners overseas. Uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Doctors Without Borders, Amnesty International, and other groups. As soon as they arrive, we help them find housing before they even arrive. As privately sponsored refugees, we look for housing. And as you can imagine, in the context of BC and Vancouver in particular, it's, that's not an easy task. <laughs> we financially support the privately sponsored refugees for a period of one year. As soon as that's done, we help them apply for uh, all sorts of documentation and services that are there, whether it's a medical services plan and, or the interim health, federal health. And when that's done, then we register kids in school, if there are any, and if there are none, uh, and, and of course with parents, we connect them to language centers to start learning the language if they don't uh, speak the language. Refugees, we used one term, but they come from diverse background and educational background and levels. And some of them are really professional. We help them to accredit their credentials and get them into the field, which is really not easy. And the context of, um, context of uh, COVID-19, we've had so many uh, medically trained, internationally trained medical doctors really not being able to participate, even though they were willing to provide services there. But then employment is the other thing. We have a lot of employment and training program to support refugees and that are really unique there for those who bring limited or informal education and they know that it would take them longer. We help them uh, by getting training, uh, food safe, first aid, some really practical one to be able to find employment. And our employment program would make sure that when they are ready to find employment, then it's there. We, really, we work with partner organization to 
look into the mental health um, of the um, refugees that are coming. Uh, but we know year one, normally uh, we call it the honeymoon stage. People are really excited because they're, they're leaving all the war behind, refugee camps and situations that they're going through, all the difficulties and being worried about all the little details. Now they are here safe, so they get much happier than in, in the first days. But then reality kicks in the more they stay here. Uh, recognizing that the, our definition in Canada for who is considered as a family member uh, in, in the immigration context, it limits it to only husband, wife, or spouses, uh, plus children who are under the age of 22. But in many communities, it includes parents, grandparents, sisters, brothers, and nephews, nieces, cousins, and the rest. And knowing that even after arriving in Canada, that uh, they have family members still stuck in war uh, situations, then it creates more uh, trauma for, for the families there. Um, so, so really, that's only one group of people, but we also have unique program. Mosaic is one of only two um, settlement organizations that was uh, awarded funding by the provincial government to support uh, refugee claimants or otherwise known as asylum seekers, and these are the groups of people who managed to arrive in Canada that Dan referred to, um, and, and then they claim refugees upon arrival, whether, whether it's at the port of entry with um, the United States or by plane, or if sometimes people are already here, or, in, or, or student visas, or work permit visas, or on visitor visa, but then uh, things change in their country of origin, and then they would fear persecution by going back, then uh, they would claim refugee in England offices. And the, the programming for this type of population is even more necessary because uh, those who arrive in Canada as privately sponsored refugees are considered permanent resident upon arrival. So with that status, it gives them more eligibility and ease in accessing services, but then refugee claimant and asylum seekers, it's even, it's more difficult with them because upon arrival, they don't have a status and they would be considered as refugee claimant. They, the services and, and that they're eligible for are really limited in number. So they need first to apply for a work permit to be able to work. Um, they need to apply for a study permit to study. It, it complicates things even more. And, so um, complications are really there, and uh, we are really fortunate at, the, at Mosaic to have a wide range of programs and services available to address the need of the population that we serve, whether they're immigrant, refugees, or people who are in Canada on temporary status. Oh, thanks very much, Salim. Nancy, please tell us some of, the, some of your experiences and give us some of the knowledge that you're gaining on these issues. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, Salim, for highlighting some of the numbers that are coming into Canada around refugee categories. Sometimes, even though you highlighted that there are smaller numbers in comparison to the world refugee crisis, those numbers have a big impact for provinces and territories. My work has been primarily in the integration of settlement and primary health care services in the province of British Columbia and Canada as well. 
And so I'm interested very much around the social determinants of health and how they impact access to care as well as quality of care. And so you might have fewer numbers of people arriving, for example, when the Karen refugee crisis happened prior to the Syrian crisis, we had approximately five to 700 folks. And that doesn't sound like a large number, but it has a massive impact for local communities, especially when we think about who people are that are arriving. For example, their education status, their language status, their history of trauma. And research has shown that immigrants that arrive to Canada are twice as likely to face challenges in accessing health care than those born here. They experience multiple barriers related to integration, as you already highlighted, such as language and employment and housing. But when it comes to accessing healthcare services, those things, those social determinants play out as well. And people that are what we call maybe newer to Canada, such as some Syrian communities or Rohingya even, where people come from matters in terms of being able to navigate a healthcare system. So these are incredibly complex issues. So while we have a lot of data that predated the refugee crisis looking at immigrants, and people that come for economic or employment reasons or just wanting to resettle, their health status deteriorates over the long term. And both in chronic conditions and even in mental health can worsen over time. And those are related to stressors uh, directly related to social determinants such as housing, employment, and so on. So while people are resilient, longitudinal data has shown us that they arrive in a better health condition status than our people that are born in Canada, and over the long term it gets worse. Now for refugee groups, that looks a little bit different and is even more complicated because they already arrive with complex chronic care conditions on top of trauma and also violence. So those things are compounded over the long term. And we've had studies that have shown us that a culture-related stress over time compounds some of the health conditions that people already arrive with. And so numbers matter to some extent, but also the complexity of issues and the acuteness of the issues when they arrive, often people on the front lines aren't quite prepared. Um, and so, for example, in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia, we have uh, newcomer Canadian clinics, which are the first point of contact of care. And so we've had to rapidly readjust what primary health care looks like. And many people still are not able to access, even though they may fall under a refugee category or a label that enables them to get health insurance coverage, a lot of providers um, aren't aware of that coverage, the interim federal health plan. It's created yet another barrier. Women tend to be more responsible for health care of the family, so there's also gender-sensitive issues and related to access as well as language. And, and seniors also uh, tend to get left out of the system 
because they simply can't make a medical appointment. It's too complicated. So these factors have existed and still exist in the context of COVID. And of course, with public health me measures around uh, social distancing, family separation, and not being able to access services for those that can, most things started to move into a virtual world, which has uh, both barriers as well as facilitators. So lots of complex issues. And I would again highlight that the social determinants of health really need to be looked at in terms of what promotes health and well-being for our newcomers community. And, and so um, it's really important that our healthcare system, particularly our first point of contact system, also addresses the social determinants and is linked better with trauma services and counseling and support, for example, existing mental health supports. Nancy, could you maybe give us an example of one of the approaches to health and well-being of refugees that's been successful? Maybe a program or a group that's done something that, that's really been working well, do you think? Yeah, so there's been a movement um, in the province of BC, following other examples in the country, toward what we call community health centers and adopting that model of care, which would perhaps integrate more social determinants of health and provide family support and services, some of the things that Celine has mentioned. So we do have some innovative models in the province. One is the Collingwood Neighborhood House that's located very close to Mosaic. And not that proximity matters in all cases, but this model of first point of contact of care usually has a different structure to it, meaning that it's not fee for service. You don't have to have the numbers of people coming in, but that you're really working with an integrated care team. So that's multidisciplinary. So for example, social work, nursing, medicine, and other health professional groups are working together to try and provide more integrated care. Now, evaluations of those programs suggest that they work because you don't need to have claimed a label or a status to access them. So those are some examples of how it's working well. And I want to stress that the relationship between primary health care and public health and settlement services is very important. And I think that we need to have more of that relationship building because often what happens is the settlement services themselves are straddled with the burden of providing trauma counseling, healthcare services, and what we call health promotion work, which is great and fantastic. But sometimes settlement providers, even healthcare providers, need particular expertise and more enhanced knowledge and support around how to do that work well. Because often in doing this work, we also experience vicarious trauma or even moral distress. And a lot of the people that are doing the work had ex refugee experiences themselves or just have ex lots of experience with working with people that are very disenfranchised. And so we need to support our settlement and our health providers as well. And there's some innovative national work going on that I wanted to mention in terms of addressing some of these social and structural challenges. And one is called the Newcomer Navigation Network. 
and it's a web-based platform for professionals such as nurses, social workers, settlement workers, physicians to work together around system navigation. And this platform provides e-learning as well as data on immigration at local as well as national and international levels. It also supports funding uh, to do research and evaluation. So it's just started uh, as of May and you can access it through newcomernavigation.ca and it's an excellent platform. Another initiative that's happened that's more specific to mental health needs was developed with the Canadian Association of Mental Health or otherwise known as CAMH, the Office of Health Equity. And it was funded with IRCC, Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada, and collaborators in the field to really support settlement workers and frontline providers on how do we understand trauma? How do we provide culturally sensitive and culturally safe care? And so these are the main issues that are coming up over and over again. And as you said earlier, the crisis doesn't stop. You know, we're seeing more and more violence ensue with racism, with the overdose crisis, and all of these things matter. And they all come back to how do we plan for pandemics? And we have planning already in place. And we know from previous research in, for example, H1N1, that immigrants, uh, racialized and minority groups are disproportionately represented when we look at crisis in terms of pandemics. And so right now, Canada is starting to collect some of that racial, ethnic, or I'm hoping migration status data. And to not do it is reinforce the silencing of who is actually at greater risk. So in the context of COVID, um, I, my understanding of what's happening on the ground is that health services are moving toward virtual technology technologies. Those have been working pretty good for people that have already built trust, trusting relationships with um, sort of like a community health center or a primary health care service provider. Um, for other groups that are more at risk um, that can be triggered by things like COVID where they have to self-isolate may, may trigger traumatic memories and they might need more outreach support. And I think that um, we should be looking toward more outreach. And certainly my research with refugee communities in the Lower Mainland including Syrian groups, many have talked to me and stated that they are afraid to go to their health provider and they shouldn't be afraid. And that coming to see them and developing a relationship really means a lot. So those are some of the ongoing issues in the context of COVID. Well, thanks very much. Celine, can I turn to you now and, and just ask you, how has the work of Mosaic changed uh, over these last few months? Fortunately, with COVID-19, it changed things even worse. We had a refugee family that uh, we were um, making plans. We've already, uh, we, we had a house ready uh, to welcome the family from Dadaab, Kenya. Uh, I mean, they received their travel notice that they would board a plane on April 6th to come to Canada. And unfortunately, they're still there. The, the flight got canceled. And we were informed by Immigration Canada that uh, a new date would be assigned when International Organization for Migration manages to find a new date uh, for them to come. 
and, and, and that's one of the complexities. There are so many vulnerable population that, are, that we are ready to welcome them. And unfortunately, due to, the, to everything that happens to the closure of borders, not, not availability of flights, they're not able to come. The other thing is really the refugee claimants who managed to cross the border right before the closure of the borders. All of a sudden, all of the IRCC offices and Nancy provided the actual name of IRCC, which is Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, and, and CBSA, Canada Border Services Agency, their offices were closed. So for them, they were not, those uh, refugee, uh, refugee claimants were not able to get um, an identification document that will allow them to rent a place or they would allow them to access um, income assistance because they're still not eligible to work. And it kind of adds more layers into it to go to a shelter. Uh, Dan, you, Nancy, Doug, and I, we managed to find a place when we are told to self-isolate or to go into to keep physical distancing. Unfortunately for everyone, that's not the case. And we've had some families that were arrived, we managed to put them into housing back in December of last year and, and early of this year. And, and now they are really stuck. Um, there is no way for us to go in connecting them to different services. Attending a language center would not be a possibility because they cannot do an assessment first. They have to. They need to do an assessment and then be placed into a language and to find employment during this time. It's not an easy thing to do. So it's it's really adding layers to it, and, and we continue to work. But unfortunately, we've had limitation around letting people into our um, offices because uh, we need to make sure that there are barriers in place, and uh, we follow the guidelines that the health officer has put forward. So it it really added more layers into the actual complex nature of our own job. Oh, thanks a lot, uh, Nancy. Can you? Please tell us some things that you're seeing on the ground uh, or, or uh, through your research. You talked a little bit already about more virtual delivery, which may uh, improve the situation for some people at least, but give us a little more insight into that, please. Okay. So, yeah, I've touched on the issue around use of virtual technologies for providing delivery of care. And you're absolutely right that this may actually address some of the inequities related to being able to go somewhere or navigate a system. On the other hand, it may also increase some risk for families that are, for example, receiving trauma counseling at home and some of the privacy and issues related to that and you know how those issues are managed in a virtual world. I know that um, Vicar, Victoria Immigrant Counseling uh, Center, is providing a, a lot of their counseling support to the new refugees that have arrived through virtual methods. And I hear that those are going quite well, but again, they've had established relationships. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of people that are still waiting. And, and another point around the impact, sort of what you mentioned earlier, is that we're seeing more people being dispersed in rural and different geographic kind of contexts. And so virtual technologies have been used as a way to share care and as a way to provide specialized support in outlying communities. 
And we know that, again, coming back to the numbers piece, one family or even a few can impact the capacity of a community and community health system to provide support to that family. So these technologies have been around, and, and I think that we're going to be seeing them used more and more. We don't yet know exactly the overall benefits of how they will service um, the refugee communities, I think, as yet. But we're seeing some promise, uh, some promising practices there. Those are some of the impacts of COVID. And, but again, you know, I think that we need to look at enhancing how we address the social determinants of their health over the long run. Um, and as you said, Celine, there is a honeymoon period, but a cultural rate of stress over time really impacts the health. And it increased if, if we're looking at dollars, healthcare dollars and, and cutting those back. We don't want people heading into emergency departments to receive their care. And often that's what some uh, refugees will do because it's easy or they'll go to a walk-in clinic. It's easy, you, you know, because it's urgent, but it's actually very complex. And, and yet we're dealing with a fragmented system. So uh, lots of work to be done. Um, as yet. I know that most of the funding resources, at least here in Victoria, in terms of primary care, have gone toward COVID testing, where refugee families would have originally gone to continue to get their health care need. And so they're not um, necessarily getting that right now, unless it's virtual or through outreach or, the, or hospital. So that has definitely impact access to care because of the COVID crisis. Thanks a lot. You know, we are getting to the end here. And what last thought would you like to leave people with? Celine, so start with you. Sure, thank you. Our population is aging. We need immigrants and refugees to help us build the country and maintain our services there. We've seen what happened in long-term facilities and care facilities for seniors. Having refugees here and being able to use all of their potential uh, using their education and experience and contributing into the system. And the sooner we provide the support and the, the infrastructure for the uh, refugee population, the, the better we would help them thrive and the, the more benefits we would gain from it. Most of the refugees that I have met the first thing they would tell me upon arrival is, how can I find employment? I hope we recognize these issues sooner and we try to address them and not wait for many more years for us to have the same conversation over and over again. Nancy, do you have any kind of last thoughts around these issues? I want to just say that I'm encouraged by the advocacy work that is currently being done and how different disciplines and facets of the community have come together in terms of solidarity. I was in a discussion yesterday around ethics and the ethicist was talking about an ethics of hope. And so I think that that really resonates in terms of what we're seeing happen. Physicians and public health advocates are coming together to advocate for collecting data that matters because if we don't have that data around who's at risk, we won't be able to have those policies and practices in place that really address immigrant, refugee, ethnocultural, and racialized community issues. So I'm encouraged by the advocacy work and the increased solidarity as we're seeing happen now in the context of COVID. 
Thank you very much. And I'll just add one final thought of my own, which is society has to do something that's really hard right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, we don't even know if we're in the middle of we're somewhere, you know, in, in this process of a pandemic. But society needs to remember that we're going to solve this. It's going to go away. There's talk of a vaccine maybe being introduced by the end of this year, perhaps early next year. This is going to go away. But the problems that we're talking about here, the crises around the world, they're not going away. These are persistent problems that have gone on for years and will go on for years. So, of course, it's understandable that a society like Canada right now is obsessed with the COVID crisis. But we also have to keep in mind that there are uh, all of these issues around the world that are right now kind of on pause uh, in our minds, but they're not on pause in reality. They're actually happening and throwing more people into despair, more people into crisis uh, on a daily basis. Once we sort ourselves out, we have to return to these issues, I think, in a very forceful way. And as Nancy said, through advocacy, through the kinds of things that Canadian government also is becoming aware of, there are good signs of hope in that, in that particular direction. So let's uh, finish the, uh, the podcast now. I'll say thanks to everyone. Thank you. And it has been a pleasure joining all of you. Thanks very much for having me on this podcast today. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Global Migration Podcast. That was Nancy Clark, Dan Hebert, and Salim Spindari discussing refugee and settlement experiences in the lower mainland of British Columbia. To learn more about today's speakers, visit our website at migration.ubc.ca slash podcast. While you're on the site, take a look around and explore our other COVID-19 related initiatives, as well as research projects and upcoming events organized and sponsored by UBC Migration. One of the most exciting of these new programs is the Storytelling for Change filmmaking campaign. This is a new project aimed at Canadian youth who want to tell their story through film, or perhaps just need a bit of encouragement to tell their story. It involves free webinars on filmmaking and some cash prizes for the best short film submitted by a Canadian youth. The deadline is August 1st, so if you, or perhaps someone you know, wants to learn more about filmmaking, take a look at migration.ubc.ca slash storytelling for change. Until next time, be well and be kind.